Okay, people, my friends, welcome to this week's Think Jewish. And this week's Torah portion is the portion of Shalach. What is the story, the opening story of the portion of Shalach? The opening story is that Moses sent 12 spies to Israel. And thus, the title of tonight's class, the lecture, is actually for those of you who ever remembered that there's a famous movie out there, the true story of Ellie Cohen, and it's called The Impossible Spy. So tonight's class is called The Impossible Spy in memory of Ellie Cohen. So let's go through the story quickly. Let's see what happens after the story, and then we will discuss what this whole thing has to do with us. You know, it's important to remember that the Jews spent 40 years in the desert. Now, it takes more than less than one book to talk about everything that happened in 40 years. But obviously, the Torah selects which stories it puts into the written book, and the rest are, of course, handed down in the oral law. But those that make it into the written book, it's because they have an eternal message for us. So the story of the spies, which seems to have nothing what to do with us, it's done, it's over with. There are other stories that make sense. That, you know, it makes sense that we should talk about it and so forth and so on, and every year we find a message. But the story of the spies, why is it in the Chumash? So what we're going to talk about tonight is actually an amazing twist on the story where we're not talking about the 12 spies that were sent by Moses, we're talking actually about the spy within us. Another beautiful twist to the story is going to be that in the five books of Moses, the spies died and they were wrong. However, in this interesting teaching of the Rebbe of Blessed Memory of 1967, on this week's Torah portion, we're actually going to find out that the spies were not wrong. They were just way ahead of their time. So let's get to the story. So what happens? The Jewish people are standing at the border, and Moses hears from them that they want to send spies. Each tribe is going to send a spy, besides the tribe of Levi, because the tribe of Levi doesn't receive a portion in the land. But the other 12 tribes, they each sent uh, one leader as a spy. And they were told, uh, actually I'm using the word spy, but if you look at the Torah portion, it's not called spy. They're actually sent to tour their land. That's what Moses says, Lasura Sa'aretz. Bring me back geographical and demographical facts. How many of you people have had the great experience of having a tour guide in Israel? Those of you like me that had that great experience will know that tour guides in Israel give political opinions, not geographical or demographical facts. And these 12 spies did the same thing. They didn't come back with what Moses asked them. They came back with an opinion we will not be able to conquer the land. And all the Jewish people take up this whole cry. Why did you take us out of the land of Egypt? And when this, and the land of Israel, it's terrible, and ta-ta-ta-ta. And Hashem gets upset. And what does Hashem tell them? They're going to pay a year for a day. The spies toured the land for 40 days. They're going to spend 40 years in the desert. Okay? Then what happens? The Jewish people get full of remorse. They get very depressed. Will we ever get into the land of Israel? 40 years is a long time. So they start thinking eternity. We'll never get into the land of Israel. We'll probably make another mistake somewhere along the line. 
comes along the end of the parsha, and Hashem gives them a commandment, and this commandment is actually going to bring them comfort. Why? Because the commandment begins, and when you shall come into the land to dwell, then you will have to bring with your sacrifices libation and meal offerings. We're going to get into the libation and meal offering in a moment. But just those opening words of them hearing, Kitavao, when you will come to the land, that means that God's giving us a commandment that cannot be fulfilled until we come into the land. That means that once again we have the promise that we will come into the land and thus they find comfort. So this mitzvah is not just out of the blue. Smack in the middle of the Torah portion are the spies and they hear that they're going to spend now their, their entire life in the desert and the next generation is going to go in. Maybe they won't even get in. All of a sudden, there's a meaning to the specific mitzvah. Kitavau ala aretz. A couple of questions. Number one, there are many mitzvot that have to do only when the Jewish people arrive into Israel. All the laws of agriculture. The last holiday that we celebrated, which is Shavuot, when you bring the first fruits, that only starts when you come into the, into the land of Israel. The whole agricultural side of the, of the holiday of Chagabi Kurim doesn't apply in the desert. So why does Hashem have to pick this interesting mitzvah of libation? Nisachim. Number one. Number two, let's ask another question. Why is it that in the desert they only brought the sacrifices? They didn't bring the libations. They didn't bring the wine and the oil. Why taka? Hashem told them they should bring sacrifices. The libation is connected to the sacrifice. So why don't we do it in the desert for 40 years? When you get to Israel, that's when you'll start bringing the wine and the oil and the other stuff. Another question. A third question. What exactly were the spies thinking? From the day that they left Egypt, they knew that the journey wasn't about where you're leaving, it's about where you're arriving to. So the focus of the land of Israel was always on the itinerary. So why all of a sudden do they take such a bad opinion? And understand that these weren't your average Joe Schmoes. These were the great people of the 12 tribes. Moses handpicked them. Not only that, the two that actually gave a good report had to have very special powers. Moses changes Hosea's noon to Yehoshua, may God help you. That means Moses knew that this is scary. And what happens to the other one, Kalev? Kalev breaks away from the crowd and runs to the Ohel. He goes to Hebron. He goes to pray by Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. That means that this wasn't so easy. Even the two that did come back with a proper report, they also were scared that they're going to be sucked into this. What's going on here? The Jewish people knew all along that we have to go to the land of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the land that God promised us. I mean, this, this, what happened here? What was this all of a sudden a surprise? So what were these righteous people handpicked by Moses, called Anche Shem, men of stature, men of great name? These are the people who botched up. So there's a bunch of things that we need to go ahead and understand in this Torah portion. Okay, what's going on here? You know, the details of what the spies are saying if you listen to them carefully, 
you will carry an undertone of what's really being said. Yeah, they're bringing fruits, they're bringing this, but there's an undertone of what the real issue with them is. What is the real issue that's bothering them? If there's one verse that really gives us a clue to what they're really worried about, it's that statement that it is a land which eats up its inhabitants. That's a very powerful statement. Eretz ochelet yoshveha. Now, by the way, before we get in the mystical, you always have to know the practical. The practical is that there's two opinions, what was going on there. But basically, it really means it literally. That God set up that there should be funerals so the people will be too busy to pay attention that there are 10, 12 strangers amongst us. But what's deeper than that? What's going on here? What does it mean, Eretz Ochelet Yoshveha? So to understand that, we need to back up a little bit and take a look at who these people were, these spies, what was going on in the desert, and what the message over here is. The situation that's going on is that we are taught in Kabbalah and Hasidis that there was never in the history of our people a spiritual people like the people of Moses' generation, the generation of the desert. Now let's talk about it first of all, before we talk about their spiritual heights, let's just talk about the facts on the ground. They didn't have to work for a living, they had mana. The clouds actually pressed and cleaned their clothes. Besides the clouds that protected them, they had clouds of glory. The water they drank is called the well of Miriam, which was miraculously brought out of a rock. So their entire environment was spiritual. Now, what did they do all day? If they didn't have to work for a living, if they didn't have to get up and race through a minion and run to their office, what did they do? It's very simple. This was the generation, the only generation, that heard directly souls in bodies from God, the Torah. So their entire life's experience was one of spirituality. That's all it was. They woke up in the morning and they learned. They came home and there was manna. There was miraculous water. So these people, by definition of who they were, by their environment, yeah, the clothes was also by the clouds of glory. So what happens is that by their definition of their environment and who they were and their experience that they had at Mount Sinai, they were the most spiritual generation that ever existed. And then what happens? All of a sudden, their entire world is going to collapse on them. All of a sudden, they're being asked that they should give this all up, enter into the land of Israel, six days a week you shall work, only one day of the week you will have spirituality, six years you'll have to fight with the ground, the original curse of Adam, and then on the seventh year you'll have a sabbatical to go to yeshiva, do so you understand what was going on through their minds? What kind of life is this? Let's repeat the words. Eretz ochelet yoshvea. The land will eat up its inhabitants. 
if we are meant to be spiritual, the land is going to eat us up. And that's why they really didn't have bad intentions. They weren't afraid that God can't conquer the land of Israel. They weren't afraid of war. They were afraid of what will happen to their life, their soul. All they knew was Hashem Echad, Ushmo Echad, Davin, learn. And all of a sudden, all of that is going to be swallowed up. Even the Shabbat day, as you and I unfortunately know, is most often spent on rejuvenating from Friday, preparing for Monday. So what spirituality is left to our Shabbat? This is what bothered them. This is what they meant when they said that the land's going to eat up its inhabitants. Let's talk about something. There is a very interesting saying. It says like this. We are not human beings having divine motions, divine moments. We are actually divine beings having human moments. That's who they were, and they realized good and well that they're about to lose that. And that was what they were fighting. Let's talk about sacrifices versus libations. So let's just talk about the facts. Libations is wine and oil that would have to be poured onto the altar with every sacrifice just that you should know the physical process. On one corner of the altar, there were two holes, one a little bigger, one a little smaller, the water and the oil, one thicker than the other, the wine and the oil. And what would happen is they would pour onto the altar with the sacrifice they would put on the libation, and it would run down those two pipes, those two holes into the ground, okay? That's just what it is. And then there's the meal offering. The meal offering is made, the carbon mincha is made out of flour. And then there's a the sacrifice. The sacrifice comes from different type of animals, fowl or animal, it depends what type of fowl, depends what type of animal, as is all prescribed in the Torah, depending on your financial, what you can afford, or whatever it may be. So let's talk about on a spiritual level, what's the difference between a sacrifice and a libation? And we're gonna soon find out why God specifically picked this mitzvah, not any other mitzvah that has to do with the land of Israel, but this mitzvah was the cure and the comfort for what the spies did. So let's talk about this. What is the definition of a sacrifice? So understand that in the world of Kabbalah, you always have two forms of service to God. It all comes from the chesed in Givurah, the Kohen, the Levi, the praying versus the mitzvahs and the Torah study, it's always going to break down into one or two things. In Hebrew, it's called ratzui veshuv. In English, it's translated as ebb and flow. The definition of a sacrifice as in prayer is the upbound ebb. It's where the soul, a piece of God, is yearning to return back into the bosom of the mother flame, its source, God. That is 
how the spies and the entire generation lived their life. It was never about bringing divinity down here. It was always about the ebb, the yearning, the souls wanting to cleave to God. The format for that is abstinence of all forms because they want to not be involved. They want to be able to have the greatest spirituality they could. And spirituality feeds off abstinence. When we pursue the physical, that's the opposite of the ebb. And now you think back why God set up the mana, why God set up that you have absolutely zero pursuit of physical needs. Because their entire experience, you remember what happened at Mount Sinai? Why did the Jewish people run to Moses and say, no, God talked to you and you talked to us? Because at every single word that God uttered, the soul left the body and returned. That is their experience of life. It was the ebb. Always looking to go up. What is the definition of a sacrifice? This definition of a sacrifice is to take the animal, put it onto the altar where it is consumed by the fire. And as you all know, the fire from the altar, where did it come from originally? It fell from heaven. That means that the entire job of the sacrifice is the elevation of the physicality. It's a habit completely consumed in the fiery love and passion to God. So this was what we call Ratsui. It's wanting to leave the confinement of the physical realm, the physical environment, the physical body. It's all about being consumed, going upwards to God. It's about having as much as possible the peace of God within you returning into the bosom of the mother flame, God. That's what it wants. What is the opposite of that? Is the flow. The focus on the service of God of flow is not to be consumed and go up, but rather drawing divinity down. That is what doing mitzvot is all about. We take a physical object and we draw divinity into the physical object. That's what it is. You take a pair of tefillin, it becomes holy. You invite guests to your Shabbos table, you say words of Torah, and the food on the table becomes holy. It becomes part of a mitzvah. What is the libation? The libation is pouring from above down. Let me just give you a little bit of Kabbalah text stuff here, okay? In the world of Kabbalah, oil has to be crushed out of an olive. The oil is very deep within the olive. It's not like the process of making wine. You can't just get some big-feeded people walking on olives. So what happens is that this, in the world of Kabbalah, represents the emanation of wisdom, which is deeply embedded. It's the essence. What is, an olive, what is a grape? Wine. Wine is closer to the surface of the grape. You don't need to crush it. You just need to squeeze it. That represents that divinity emanation which is waiting for revelation. That is understanding. And then what is the flower from the meal offering? We have an interesting teaching that the tinok, 
The young infant child cannot say the word Abba until it eats Dagan. It eats from flour. F-L-O-U-R. So the word she says over there is layoda, from the word dot, knowledge. So flower represents knowledge. So in libations, what are we talking about? We are talking about the three head emanations. We're talking about the highest levels. Chachma, Bina, Dat. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And what is the job of a libation? To take the highest of the highest and to do what with it? Bring it down. Flow, not ebb. We're pouring it down. That's a representation of mitzvot. And now you understand why in the desert they didn't do that. Because their entire life in the desert was not flow. Their entire life in the desert was ebb. They weren't looking to bring divinity down into the world. They were looking to make sure that the world didn't serve as a hindrance, as blockages, for them to have their ebb with God. Thus you have the difference between the sacrifice and the libation. Thus you have the differences between the spies and going into Israel. So in this process of the spies, their mistake was that they lived life all about their relationship with God. What do we know? We've heard it every single time, Shabbos after Shabbos. There isn't a, a time that they ever spoke that he didn't quote these words. He quotes it from Tanya that the purpose of creation is what? The whole purpose of creation was not that we should remain spiritual on treetops, but rather that we should have physical involvement. Abstinence is not okay according to the Torah. So much so if you remember by the Nazir, the one who only separated himself from wine and from cutting his hair. He actually has to bring a sin offering because the Talmud says, enough what God told you you can't do. Don't take upon yourself more because your work is involvement. That which God told you you can't, you can't. But that which you could, you should in a spiritual way. So the problem with the spies was that they only focused on the ebb, not realizing that in the greatest manner, the purpose of Bereshit bara, Elokim et HaShemayim et HaAretz, the whole reason God created the universe was for the flow, not for the ebb. The soul had the ebb before it came down here. The soul had the ebb far greater than be before it came down here. Even the greatest tzaddik, the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya, his love and his passion and his faith down here is only a ray of what it experienced up there. Needless, needless to say. Even though it says clearly that the body of a tzaddik is holy and has transparency to divinity, but nevertheless, it's a body. Compare that to how the soul was before it came down here. So the, the bottom line of creation isn't about the ebb, it's about the flow. So it's all beautiful to spend your years in the great big yeshiva Torah Moshe in the Midbar, in the desert. But that's not what it's all about. Clearly God told the angels that the reason why the Jews have to receive the Torah is because they deal with the physical world. So what are the spies doing trying to minimize 
and live only as an angel. Live only in an ebb relationship and not in a flow relationship. Thus, we now hear that the answer to that which they're saying, because the Jews were frightened, the Jews were really frightened that their spirituality will be swallowed up. So the answer is that it's not about the sacrifice, it's about the libation. Don't talk to me about how close you can get to God. Talk to me about what you can do to your environment. How spiritual can you make your environment? How transparent can your home be to divinity? That the minute a person walks into the house, he immediately sees this is a Yiddish home. From the mezuzah on the door, to the two sinks in the kitchen, to the holy books. You immediately see. That's what it's all about. Interesting enough. The Talmud tells us a very interesting statement. Talmud in Brachot, page 14, side B. It tells us that someone who says the Shema Yisrael without a talit, obviously we're talking about a male who's obligated to wear a talit. The man who says the Shema Yisrael without a talit is as if he brought a burnt offering, the carbon olah, without the meal offering. It's as if he brought any other sacrifice without the libation. Again, these two worlds ebb and flow. What is Shema Yisrael all about? So we're taught that when you say the word Echad, you have to be long. You'll actually notice some people actually make a whole show out of stretching it out. Hashem Echad. It comes from somewhere. It's a statement in the Gemara. Whoever makes long the word Echad. But what is the halachic statement? How long do you have to make the Echad? So, and simply speaking, it's not length of 30 seconds straight in one breath. It actually depth. You have to say the words, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one, until you really reach the emotional stage where you're willing to die for God if that's what's needed. Like Abraham. Nimrod, you're going to throw me in the fire? Throw me in the fire. But I will not be bowing to an idol. He didn't look for it. But if that was the only choice, then so be it. That means what's the experience of the Echad? The ultimate ebb. I'm actually willing to leave this physical world completely. I am willing to die for you, God. So the Shema Yisrael properly said, when you pronounce those words, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, it is the ultimate ebb experience. I am willing to completely leave this physical encasement and return into you, Hashem Echad. What is... Okay. On the other hand, what is... I, I said Talit, by the way. And I was wrong. I meant to fill in. I don't know what I'm thinking. I'm sorry. The Talmud says, whoever says, whoever says um, Shema without Tfilin. I did say Talit before, right? Yeah. A mistake. I meant Tfilin. Tfilin, Maimonides tells us that of the two Tfilins, the one on your hand and the one on your head, the main one is the one on your head. What is the Kabbalistic definition of your Tfilin on your head? 
It's actually called drawing down the intellects. You'll notice on one side of your tefillin you have a three-headed chin, and on the other side of your tefillin you have a four-headed chin, if you look at your head box. You'll also notice that it's separated into four boxes. What that means in Kabbalah is you have wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, but knowledge is the consummation which gives birth to emotions right and left, which is kindness and strictness. So the whole concept of tefillin, the way it's explained in Kabbalah, is what we call hamshachas hamoichin, to draw down the intellect emanations. Why? The process of the tefillin is, and you have to actually think this as you put on the tefillin, it's halacha. There are three things you have to think. One of them is called shibud hamoyach vihalev. The entire commitment, the subservience of the mind and the heart to God. That's what tefillin is all about. From there you have to go straight into the love God you got. So we have to draw down the divine intellect to be able to give birth to spiritual emotions. Loving God, fearing God, bringing down the straps till your finger of action. Interesting enough, the straps on your, of your hand filling have a specific job. Other than connecting the box to your hand, you don't just tie it over here, right? You then go down the hand to the finger. That means that the strap of the hand filling has a purpose. What is the purpose of the straps of your head filling? Once it actually has it on your head, there's a law that those two straps that come down have to reach below your belly button. Now it says that Rebbe was called a holy man because he never let his hand go beneath his belly button. That means that there's something deep here. The process of the head filling is to bring the divinity all the way down. There's no other purpose for the straps. They're not tied to anything. They're not forming any letters of God's name. They're simply a representation that the highest levels of the three intellects, as they divide into four, because the third intellect divides into two emotions, love and fear, has to come down, and where does it have to come down? Even into the nether parts beneath your belly button. So the entire concept of tefillin is the statement of flow. Now go back to the statement of the Talmud. He who says Shema without tefillin, that means I reach the ultimate ebb. I'm willing to die for God if that's what's needed of me. But I didn't put on tefillin. I didn't focus on, forget about me being willing to leave for God. What's about inviting God down here to flow? That's tefillin. So he who says the Shema without wearing tefillin is exactly like someone that placed the animal on the fiery love of the altar to be consumed in an ebb relationship with God, but forgot to bring the flower offering or the libations, which is about bringing down the flow of divinity into here. Now we understand what the spies were all about. The spy situation that we're talking about, they were fighting against the libations. They were saying sacrifice is enough. Just saying the Shema Yisrael is enough. All we need is to be able to get all the physicality out of the way and have a total ebb relationship, yearning to be one with God. That's all we need. You were there at Mount Sinai. You saw the heavens open up. 
You know it's all about spirituality. That's all we need, they were screaming. Why are we going to go into a land which is going to eat this up? And that was a grave mistake. And that's why God tells them, no, 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 you don't get it. Sacrifice is beautiful. But the focus has to be, the up is for the sake of the down. Get close to me, so you should do what I want. What I want you to do is to make that physical world one big, gigantic, transparent, holy temple. I want you to invite me in your home. Don't run away to come back to my home. Can you invite me into your world? Can you use your physical needs? Am I invited into your office or you only want to meet me by appointment in the synagogue? The ebb, the flow, the sacrifice, the libation, the shema, the tefillin. That was the entire fight. However, normally when you learn the Rebbe's works, you realize that this is the end. The message is that you have to bring God into the world. What was so amazing to me about this specific talk is that God, the Rebbe doesn't stop here. He takes it to the next level. He says a simple thing. In Isaiah, there's a verse that speaks about the ultimate error of the universe. What is the ultimate error of the universe? Somebody, help me out. Mashiach. Mashiach. Thank you. When Mashiach comes, that's when the world will reach its ultimate fulfillment. Now here's what it, Isaiah says. Let me actually read you the verse inside. It says like this. And strangers shall stand and pasture your sheep, and foreigners shall be your plowmen and your, and your vine dressers. What is the beautiful moment of Mashiach is that we won't have to do physical work. Other people are going to come and do our work for us. And what are we going to do? We're going to be in yeshiva. There's going to be one big base rifka, one big tomcha tamimim. The women are going to be learning in base rifka. The men are going to be learning in tomcha tamimim. And that's what we're going to do all day. <laughs> one second. Isn't that what the spies wanted? Didn't we get into so much trouble because of that? So what's Isaiah saying? Don't worry. You won't have to do no more physical work. Your job is going to be learn, learn, learn. Get connected to God. Become one with God from the inside out. Learn how to think like God. Learn how God's paradigm works so that your entire infrastructure becomes permeated by divinity. One second. In the year 2448, that was a horrible thing to say. Comes along Isaiah and says, that's what we need. Here is the twist. Here is the beautiful twist. Follow this for a moment. Were we created to serve a purpose for God that the world should reach elevation? So who's the ultimate desire of God? The world and we're just workers? Or are we the ultimate desire of God? Very important question. Rashi says, Bereshit, that why was the world created for Bet Reshit? Two things that were pre timtum That is the soul and the Torah. That means the only reason why the world was created was that we should be able to study Torah with physical brains and do the mitzvot. That means the world is here for the actualization of the soul. 
But one second, didn't we just say before that the ultimate desire is that we should make for God a beta migdish out of this entire world? What's going on here? Which is which? And the answer is that the spies were right. They were just ahead of their time. The ultimate experience is that the soul should be one with God. But before the soul can be one with God, we first have to do a job called the elevation of the fallen sparks. First, we have to refine the sparks. We have to elevate the sparks. The sparks come from the world of chaos, tohu. Our souls come from the world of tikkun, properness. Chaos has something to offer that tikkun doesn't have. So by us elevating the sparks, our soul digests not only the orderly relationship with God, but the fiery, passionate, uncontrollable, chaos relationship with God. And once that's done, once we elevated all the sparks, once we brought divinity into the world, then we go to step two, which is the ultimate of the ultimate plan. The ultimate plan is not that we should make for God a better Migdash down here. The ultimate plan is that once the world becomes a Beta Migdash, then we're going to live exactly what the spies wanted us to live. Because ultimately speaking, God doesn't want the world. God wants us. That's what the ultimate step is. So there's an unbelievable twist here. The twist here is telling us that the spies were right. They were just ahead of their times. You can't have that notion that it's all about my relationship to God while there's a mess going on in the streets. I'm going to insert a, a very interesting story. The story happened with the previous Rebbe's Gabai. The previous Rebbe pulled him in to work, and he started complaining to the previous Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, you have me typing up letters, you have me doing all this work, and, and I don't have time to daven like a real chassid, the good old four, uh, four and a half hours to six hours davening. I can't. I need to be here on time, write up your letters, type up your letters, do everything. So Chanya Manoza was complaining to the previous Rebbe. <laughs> What's supposed to be with me? What, my, my soul is just boom? What's about my davening? What's about my learning? So the previous Rebbe looked at him and said, and what should I say? And the previous Rebbe burst out crying. Previous Rebbe burst out crying that instead of being able to daven and learn all day, he's busy dealing with Jewish communities that need help. He's busy dealing with other people's physical problems, other people's issues. And he doesn't have time to sit and learn, just sit and learn Torah all day. So needless to say, when the previous Rebbe burst out crying, Sechon Yomarazah burst out crying. So they were both sitting in the office and they burst out crying. Finally, the previous Rebbe stopped crying. And then he looked at Chanya Maraz and he said, So what should we do? Let the world go in chaos? We have to put our spiritual connection on the side. There's a world out there. There are kids that don't even know the olive base. There are kids that don't even know that there's a Shavuos holiday. The day that we became the Jewish people, most of American Jewry does not even know that such a holiday exists. Talk to them about the Hanukkah bush. Talk to them about the Passover seders. But you talk to them about Shavuos, they don't even know that exists. So the previous Sabbath says, what do you want? We should just let the world go? 
Now let's go back to what we're talking about, what the Rebbe is saying in this Mimer in 1967. The spies were wrong because you can't sit and just focus on your ebb. When there's chaos in the streets, where there's divine sparks that are lost, when God's creations and technology is used for evil things rather than for spiritual loving good things. Once you take care of that mess, you're empowered by the sparks in that mess. And now everything becomes transparent. The world is normal. What do you think we're going to do? Of course we're going to sit down and learn. Of course we're going to dive in. And other people are going to take care of our physical needs. Because the ultimate, ultimate desire is not North Miami. It's the Jews that live in North Miami. That's what it's about. That's what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. What's the bottom line? In closing. From 1990 till 1992, until the Rebbe had the stroke on the 27th day of Adar, the Rebbe started speaking a very different language. The Rebbe wasn't talking only about bringing Mashiach. The Rebbe started speaking a language of open up your eyes and see that Mashiach is here, just waiting for you to see him. And that became a whole issue. What, what is the Rebbe meaning? What is the Rebbe telling us? So as the Rebbe spoke about it more and more, the Rebbe was defining what he meant. And the Rebbe said to live now in exile, the Mashiach lifestyle. Very interesting. Don't wait till Mashiach comes and then you all of a sudden like going to be in a, a culture shock. Start now living Mashiach's life. What does that mean? Start living Mashiach's life means start doing what the spies told us to do. Don't just allow yourself to be working in Jewish organizations, always dealing with others, and never taking time for your own soul. Realize that at the end of the day, no matter what you're going to do in this world, the end story is going to be your personal relationship with God. Once the palace is cleaned up, once everything is beautiful, the table is set, then the next stage is to come and sit by the table and eat from your father's feast. What is your father's feast? The ultimate connection that he gave us, which is the crown, the Torah that he placed upon our head. Thank you, people.